friends, it's, it's great to be with you all. Um, it's, a, it's a joy to, to worship with all of you and my family. The um, text for this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Read for us. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage. Just bear with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers and calling your tears I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in the remnant of Lois and your mother and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God gave us, for the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced and he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. But you heard from me as a pattern of sound teaching, the faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Pagelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. We know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus, the word of God. Thanks be to God. So this is, this is really crazy, uh, but it's been 14 years since Christopher Nolan's cinematic masterpiece, The Dark Knight, came out. It's 14 years. Uh, there are teenagers now that were born after this movie came out. Uh, it's, 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 it's a really, really great movie. Um, I think it's going to become one of those classics. Uh, it was just this wild roller coaster ride. There's this quote, it's one of my favorite quotes from the movie. Harvey Dent, he's the hot shot district attorney. He says, You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And the context is this dinner conversation about whether it was okay for the city of Gotham to have a vigilante like Batman who could operate outside of the law. What if Batman became like Julius Caesar, became a dictator, unwilling to give up his rights and his powers? What if Batman continued to do what he did and eventually lost the trust of both of them? The point of the quote is that heroism is not eternal. The hero either dies while they're ahead with the public's trust, or they'll lose it if he or she lives long enough. So as the movie goes, Harvey Dent does become that villain. Uh, he loses his fiance. He loses half his face, and he loses his morality. There's tragedy after tragedy that ruined his sense of right and wrong. And the irony of him saying that quote earlier in the movie is that it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
You see, when tragedy strikes, when we get continually hurt, something happens to our sense of purpose. It starts to get a little cloudy. The temptation to give up, to go over to the other side, it, just, it gets really big, it grows. And this was a situation for both Paul and Timothy. See, Paul is writing this letter to his protege, his dear son. And he can sense, Paul can sense that he's at the end of his life. And he's endured quite, quite a life filled with suffering, right? shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonments. Like he, he's in prison as he's writing this letter and abandonment. Right? His friends, his comrades, his gospel companions, most of them had left him. And the point that he's trying to tell Timothy, the point that he's trying to tell all of us as Christians is don't give up. Don't give up. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul summarizes that main point to three aspects of ministry. Three aspects the encouragement in ministry, the center of ministry, and the pain in ministry. So the encouragement, the center, and the pain. The first point, the, the encouragement in ministry, we're looking at verses three to seven here. And Paul is talking about two things that encourage in ministry community and words. So when I talk about community, I'm not just talking about the people that you interact with when you see face to face, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. See, Paul makes an interesting statement in verse three. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. He's making a reference to the ancestors from the Old Testament. Paul saw himself in line with the forefathers of the faith. Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets. Paul is basically saying, Timothy, we serve the same God the one true God as the people of the Old Testament did. We have a spiritual lineage that descends from them, and that line is going to continue through us. You see, as, Tim, as Timothy was tempted to give up, quit the ministry, possibly even abandon the gospel, Paul tells him, God has done so much for us. Don't you remember how he brought his people out of Egypt? Don't you remember how he brought his people out of exile? Don't you remember how he saved us? Don't give up. See, friends, as Christians, we are in that lineage. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Hebrews 12, chapter 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The cloud of witnesses. There is a crowd. There's a huge cheering section of saints waiting for us at the finish line, ready to welcome us the Savior's arms. See, our goal shouldn't just be one year of ministry or five years of ministry, but it should be for a lifetime. And being a Christian transforms everything in your life, right? Not just your Sunday worship, the way you think about your money, the way you think about your coworkers and your bosses, the way you love your spouse, the way you parent your children, the way you love your neighbor, especially the ones who are very, very difficult to love, right? There's a distinctness in the Christian life. We are called to a life of sacrifice and love. And that's not easy. What is easy is actually giving up, right? What is easy is saying, forget it. Um, I can live my life as a Christian, but not in front of my coworkers, not with my money or my time. Will you walk with Jesus for your entire life? Will you make it to the end? You see, Timothy probably encountered people who told him, look, Timothy, you know, I don't, I don't think you're cut out for this. Or maybe they said, Timothy, why are you living like this? I mean, Jesus Christ, is he really worth it? Is he worth all this suffering? 
And I think I think we can, I think we can understand this right as New Yorkers uh, in a city that promises so much more than what Christianity offers. It's tempting to just compromise on the little things. But here's the encouragement. As you see people coming to Christ, as you grow in your spiritual disciplines, as you see healing and reconciliation among racial groups, as you disciple others to think about justice and pass on the faith, you know that there are others who have gone before you. They've also served and ministered in hard places, and they are waiting at the finish line right now, cheering you on. In a city that cares so much about making your mark and leaving a legacy, Christianity offers that in the highest degree. You are part of something that began on the world. Now, while I just talked about the community that, that's basically dead, right? You know, the saints from scripture, the saints who have gone before us, I don't want to neglect the, the community of saints that's actually living, the ones who are in our lives. I'm going to draw your attention to verse 5. Paul mentions that Timothy had a genuine faith, a faith that dwelt first in Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. This is the importance of, of Christian family upbringing. Here, I want to highlight the moms, right? Tim Challies, he, he has a series of articles on his blog called Christian Men and Their Godly Moms. And he turned it into a book. They're all really amazing stories. They're, I think the story of Christopher Yuan. As he grew up, he, he started living openly as a gay man to everyone but his parents. Now, when his parents found out, his mother, an atheist at the time, she decided that she was going to end her life. But God saved her through a chaplain. She visited right before she was going to kill herself. She began, this began her dedication of praying for her son's salvation. Now, Christopher continued to party it up, and he would end up in prison for dealing drugs. And it's in prison where Christopher, Christopher finds a Bible. God saves him, and now he teaches at Moody uh, Bible Institute. He travels internationally to speak at churches, prisons, and college campuses. And Angela, his mother, she travels with him. She covers all of his speaking events with prayer. See, Christopher sees his mother as an integral partner in ministry. So he says, mom is and will always be my prayer of worry. Like her, like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. And there's so many stories like this. We have St. Augustine, uh, his mom, Monica, who persistently prayed for him, read the Psalms to him, even in the midst of his rebellious lifestyle. Maybe you should read about him lifestyle. He's, he's, he's crazy. Um, and Charles Spurgeon's mom, the, the famous Baptist preacher from London, he, her, his mom pleaded every day for God to extend his saving mercy to her children. The deepest desire of her heart was to see her children embrace her Savior. See, in all of these, we see the impact that godly mothers have on their children's faith. This is a quote from Spurgeon. Never could it be possible for any man to estimate what goes to a godly mother. Now, if you're a Christian and you have children, you have to ask, are we as a family distinct from this world? Or do we look just like them? What are you doing as a family to pass on the faith to the children? It's worth asking, do my children know that we are a Christian household? But this question, this question isn't only for the parents. Every one of you has a responsibility to pass on the faith. You see, Paul wasn't even Timothy's biological father. And look at what he calls Timothy. My dear son. Friends, this is an encouragement to Take someone under your wing and disciple them in the faith. That's community. 
The other thing that Paul encourages Timothy with, with is his words. His words. Verse 3, he prays constantly for Timothy. Verse 4, he remembers Timothy's tears. Verse 5, he reminds Timothy of his spiritual upbringing. Verse 6, he reminds Timothy that he has gifts of God. In verse 7, he tells Timothy, he tells him to not be afraid because of that gift of power, love, and self-discipline. Have you ever had someone tell you, I'm praying for you? Yeah, in campus ministry, when I hear people saying that to me, that's like the best thing. It's the most encouraging thing I can, I can do, that you're praying for me. It's, it's a massive encouragement. And now, nowadays, all it takes is a text, right? Growing up, you might have heard the rhyme, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And we know, we know that that's not true, right? Words have immense power. When someone says, I hate you, or I wish They've never been born. Those are the kinds of words that cause real trauma. Sometimes people never recover from it. It's a lifetime of scars and a couple of birds. But on the other side, words have an immense capacity for healing. Think of it, think of what it feels like when someone who's hurt you, they come up to you, right into your face, right? they look you in your eye and they say, I'm sorry. Right? Think of the times your spouse or your children have said, I love you. When you come home from work, and your child runs up to you and says, I missed you. But when your boss tells you, you've done a really good job. When a coworker says, I'm really glad that I get to work with someone like you. Or when a parent tells you, you've been a good daughter. You've been a good son. See, friends, this is the power of encouragement and ministry through community and words. I think you can understand this point even if you're not a Christian. Right? It's hard to go through life alone. When you take on a huge task, this immeasurable endeavor, what better way to go forward than to know that you've got people in your corner and they've spoken words of life to you. So when we pass the piece, you know, I love to send a, a quick text to my friends. Don't underestimate the power of such a message. Who in your life needs encouragement? Who needs your prayers? Maybe there are some of you here who are going through a really tough time right now. Friends, would you be that church family and surround these people with your most? And here's a specific application for you. As a church plans, many of you are probably serving. Right? I overheard this before service began. One of you is like a Swiss Army life. You just do like everything. Um, probably so many of you are just spending a significant amount of your lives in ministry and giving your time to the church. Take the time to pause, to speak words of life to each other. Lift each other up. Now, I know you just went through a sermon series on prayer. Pray for each other. Let others know that you're doing this. See, this is the encouragement in ministry that you all need. Point two. So point one was the encouragement in ministry. Point two is the center of ministry. And we're looking at verses 8 to 14. And here, this is the meat of the passage. And the center of ministry, it's easy. It's, it's the gospel. Right? This is one of the clearest iterations of the gospel in the Bible. Verse 10. Jesus Christ has appeared and he has abolished death while life and immortality to light through the gospel. If you take one thing away from the message today, it's this. Jesus Christ has defeated death. He's given us life. That's it. And one of the things we're most afraid of as people is, is death. Our entire lives are built on avoiding death. We want to extend our lives as long as possible. We've gone so far as to think that death is just something out there. It probably won't happen to us soon. It's just non-existent. We read about it. We see death, all of the news, but still, it doesn't affect us. I mean, why should it? 
we've got the medical technology, right? We've got the science. We've got the answers to prolonged life. But you know what's interesting? When death happens to someone close to us, suddenly we, we wake up. Whether it's a family member or a close friend, right? It just hurts on a completely different level. As long as you're alive, there won't be another day that you'll be able to see them. Death is evil. Death is not the way it was supposed to be. Death is undefeated. It takes all of us. But Paul says something very striking here. Jesus abolished death, or rather, Jesus destroyed death. He conquered it. I think Stephen Colbert, he, he put it well in an interview. He said, death does not mean defeat. We don't lose when we die. In fact, if we're in Christ, death only means the beginning of eternity with our creator, our maker, the one who we are worth. It's, it's going to be a reunion unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life, and it will be glorious. But in addition to conquering death, Jesus Christ has also brought life and immortality to life. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote that fairy stories in fantasy they speak to five longings that the human heart desires. Number one, getting outside of time, time travel. Two, escaping death. Three, holding communion with non-human beings. Four, finding a perfect love which will never depart. And five, triumph over evil. This is what Tim Keller says on these longings. If Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, if he's really the son of God and you believe in him, all those things that you long for most desperately are real and will come true. We will escape time and death. We will know love without parting. We will even communicate with non-human beings and we will see evil defeated forever. In fairy stories, especially the best and most well-told ones, we get a temporary reprieve from the life in which our deepest desires are all finally rebuffed. However, if the gospel is true, and it is, all those longings will be fulfilled. And this is good news. And in Christ, we are healed, we are restored, we are forgiven. Now, if this is the center of ministry, it's worth asking the question, why does Paul reiterate that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Right? He also tells them, don't be ashamed of the testimony. Don't be ashamed of me, a prisoner of Christ. You see, one of the ways to unpack these statements in the Bible is to assume that the opposite is happening. When Paul tells the Philippians to not be anxious about anything, it's because they were anxious. When Paul tells Timothy to not be ashamed, he was probably ashamed of the gospel at this point. You can ask, why is there resistance to this good news? Let's take a look at verses 9 through 12 a little bit more. So verse 9, when Paul says that God saved us, He's saying that we are helpless, which goes against our self-sufficiency. When Paul says that God called us, he's saying that we have a master, which goes against our attitudes of I do whatever I want, whenever I want. When Paul says he saves us by his own purpose and grace, he's saying that our own works cannot save us. When Paul says that we're saved in Christ, he's saying that we're all part of a community, a family, which goes right against our culture's love of individualism. When Paul says that God was working before time began, he's saying that there's a transcendence to the gospel that goes against our love of the immediate right now. And then Paul tells us that it's only in Jesus Christ. Right? He is the only way to salvation, which goes against our culture's love of tolerance and acceptance of many ways to salvation. And then finally, Paul says that following him leads to suffering. So Paul has now called us helpless 
having a master, not saved by our works, not individual creatures, pointing us to Jesus who he says is the only way, and this only way will lead to suffering. And no wonder why people don't believe in gospel. The totality of this message is absolutely contrary to what our society tells us. You can be anything that you want to be. Work hard and you'll be rewarded. The goal in life is to avoid suffering. Be yourself. Don't let anyone else define you. See, the gospel, as much good news as it is, finds itself opposed to many of the hashtags of our day. A point of application here. All of life is war. It's war. I know the image of war causes a lot of violence and visceral pictures, but that's the point. You have to fight for the gospel. You have to fight for your soul. See, later on in this, in this letter, Paul uses three types of people as examples. The soldier, the farmer, and the athlete. And the one thing that they all have in common is discipline. You'll never meet a real soldier, a real farmer, a real athlete who is undisciplined. My friends, are your lives marked by discipline? and focus? Is there any simplicity to how you're living, or has your life been filled with so many tasks and hobbies that you've lost sight of God? Verses 13 and 14, Paul exhorts to follow a pattern of sound words in the faith and love in Christ, and to guard the good deposit by the Holy Spirit. This is the language of battle. Do these things describe you, or are there areas in your life where you're still resistant to Jesus' call? John Stott, he writes, and when we are called to suffer for the gospel, we are tempted to trim it, to eliminate those elements which give offense and cause opposition, to mute the notes which jar on sensitive modern ears. But we must resist the temptation, for above all, we are called, called to guard the gospel, keeping it pure whatever it costs, and preserving it against every corruption. Guard it faithfully, spread it actively, suffer for it bravely. This is what he's saying. The temptation is strong to just tell people what they want to hear. The temptation is strong to just hear what we ourselves want to hear. But friends, if you follow Christ, you bear a distinct message. It's good news. It's good news. But it will only be good news if people hear the whole thing. You see, the main reason that Paul gives the Timothy here to not give up is because all of this is God's work. Verse 12, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I know who I believe in, and I'm convinced, I'm absolutely sure that God will guard that which has been entrusted to me. See, one of the temptations in ministry is to think, man, this is my work. I have to evangelize and disciple people. I have to care for souls and get people to care about justice and mercy. And yes, that is true. We do have to do that. But in the end, God makes it happen. See, Paul's confidence, the same confidence that he hopes will also encourage Timothy, is not that Paul is some really great church planter or preacher or evangelist. And Paul, in fact, Paul says in his other letters that he's not eloquent. There are people who are more skilled than he is, these super apostles. I think of Paul as someone who's not really flashy, he's not cool at all, but he trusts in God. He understands that ministry is God's work. You see, that is the power of the gospel. When we know our security is in Christ, when we know that our identity is in him, we have the freedom to actually work hard and minister to others. See, I used to think, if I knew my job was secure, if my salary was secure, I'd probably just coast in that job. Yeah, I'd just do the bare minimum. But what if I knew that someone died? Someone actually shed their blood so that that was the case. 
I do everything I could to honor that person's life. I do the best job that I possibly can because of that sacrifice. Now, whether you are a minister or you're an employee of a large corporation or you're an owner of a small business or you're a stay-at-home parent or you're a student in school, don't give up. Don't pattern the sound words. Guard the things of positive. Don't give up because the center of ministry is the good news. And finally, point three. So we've been saying, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. That's Paul's main point in this passage. And now we come to the practical reason why it's so easy to give up. The pain. The pain of ministry. And many of you know, if you've labored long enough in ministry, you're just, you're going to get hurt. This is not surprising. Jesus doesn't say, some of you, if you follow me, might endure suffering. He says it as a definitive. You will definitely suffer if you follow Jesus. And here in verses 15 to 18, we see the outworking of such suffering. Paul says that all in Asia turned away from him, among whom were Phagellus and Hermogenes. Paul's ministry led to people abandoning him. Either die a hero, you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Now, in our eyes, Paul's no villain, right? But in the eyes of everyone who left him, he basically was. Right? He was not someone worth following. He wasn't worthy to be his companion. And we see something very similar in Jesus' life. His Jesus' ministry grows and grows. He's got crowds following him. People are being healed left and right. Right? The outcast and the marginalized society are coming to him. He's feeding thousands of people with bread and fish. The crowds love Jesus when he's doing all the cool stuff, healing, miracles, changing water into wine. But as Jesus starts to say more controversial things, right, people start to leave. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Like, if I was the marketing manager for Jesus, I would be like, are you sure you want to say that? These things are not what people necessarily want to hear, right? And when, when he tells his disciples that he has to be turned over to the authority and die by their hands, well, they're all by his side, right? Until he's captured. He's abandoned. The more people understand who Jesus is and what he demands from his followers, they begin to deny him. The disciple, the friend who said that he would never deny Jesus, denies him three times. And at the end, Jesus was crucified. Jesus died on the cross alone, abandoned by, the, by his friends, but even more so by his father. As he took on the weight of the sins of the world, the father had forsaken him on the cross to die a sinner's death, the death of a criminal. You see, there is no happy ending for Paul. Like Jesus' life, Paul's ministry looks like it ends in failure. Paul, too, would die as a prisoner. See, Paul not only identifies with the gospel, he also identifies deeply with Jesus. And here's a reminder to, to us. The longer you do ministry, the longer that you're a Christian, the more hardships of being faithful to the gospel, the more they happens. I want to ask you, how do you process life when you do the right thing and you're basically lost? There was a show that I was watching with my wife called Added Elementary. Um, it's, it's hard to keep up with shows now with two little children, but it's, it was great. Uh, it's a sitcom about a poor elementary school in Philadelphia. The main character, she's this 
Beckley New School teacher. She's really excited. She's determined to change all the brokenness in the public school system, but she constantly hits roadblocks, right? And she meets a couple of veteran teachers and she thinks they've just resigned themselves. They've just given up, right? This is just the way it is, so stop trying. But here's an exchange conversation between the two of them. So the younger teacher, she asks, how do you stop yourself from caring too much? And the older teacher says, we care so much, we don't want to burn out. If we're not here for the kids, who's going to be? And that's why you got to take care of yourself. See, sometimes what we often mistake as not caring is actually wisdom and understanding that there are things that take time. There's a way that you can approach this so that you can actually take care of yourself. If you're involved in any kind of ministry to others, whether it's preaching or teaching a Bible study or visiting someone in a hospital or prison, or serving in the battery, or teaching your, your children about Jesus, any sort of ministry, you know that it's hard. And that's why you need to take care of yourself. Because the gospel will only work through you in as much as it is working in you. If the gospel has not changed your life, how can you expect it to change someone else's? As Paul exhorts Timothy to follow the pattern, keep the faith, as he speaks of Onesiphorus refreshing him, this kind of ministry can only happen when we've taken, ourselves, taken care of ourselves by not just preaching the gospel to ourselves, but also living out the implications, keeping the Sabbath, honoring our bodies. At the same time, friends, you must attend to your souls. You must do the hard, painful work of putting to death your sins. Is the only way that you'll be able to endure until the end. But here's another example of the pain, the pain in ministry. Paul brings up Onesiphorus as a positive example in Paul's life, right? Onesiphorus refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of his chains, verse 16. He also went looking for Paul earnestly and found him when he was in Rome, verse 17. This Onesiphorus, he's a man who was devoted to, to serving Paul and making sure that Paul was okay. This sounds really flowery, really nice, right? It makes for a feel-good story, but it's not. To visit someone in prison was to associate with them, and then losing credibility to the outside world. And that's a great sacrifice. This is part of the pain of ministry. Being a Christian means stepping out of our comfort zones and being radically generous with our time and money. It means giving of ourselves to others, their friends, Sacrifice like that is going to hurt. It will hurt. You see, I asked before, will you walk with Jesus for your entire life? Will you make it to the end? But the reality is that Jesus made it to the end. And he conquered death. He brought life and immortality by going to the cross. In the most shameful death in the history of the world, he made it to the end. For you. He walked that path to Calvary for you. You see, the Christian life isn't about muscling up, like more grit and determination to pray and read the Bible every day. It's about this question Is Jesus dying for you truly good news? His friends, there are plenty of reasons to be ashamed of the gospel, but in God's eyes, there are more reasons for Him to be ashamed of you. God made you only to have you spit in His face, right? Remember, remember our confession? We turn away from every single one of his commandments. We destroy his creation. We cause broken relationships. We misuse every single gift that he's given to us. 
Imagine God, right? The best groom in the world, the best. He comes to you, he says, I want to marry you. And you just say, yes. And he turns to every other groom, left and right, right? And you just say, I want to marry you, and you, and you, and you. We're here as humans, just completely making a mess of everything. And yet Jesus came to earth and he searched for us earnestly. He came to seek and save the lost. He found us, and he was not ashamed of our chains to the idols of this world. He came to free us. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, I want to ask you, what is something that you die for? Because yes, what I've just described about ministry sounds, sounds depressing, right? It's painful. But you're already going through the same thing. Each and every day you wake up, You've already got things and people on your mind. You've determined who and what you're going to sacrifice for, whether it's your career or your family or your possessions. You've already made up your mind that the center of your life is someone or something. The question is, is that thing or person enough? Whether we want to admit it, there's already something in our life that we are willing to die for. I'm willing to bet that those things will are you willing to say that the thing that you're willing to die for is Jesus? Because I can tell you, Jesus was willing to die for you. He actually did die for you because he loves you. Because he's the one who's meant to be the center of your life. Jesus died alone on the cross so that you would have communion. Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, so that you could say that to others now as encouragement. Jesus rose from the grave so that you would have to find out how to get new life out of this broken world. There is no other religion in the world like Christianity. It is unique. And it is uniquely good. You see, the world asks you to prove yourself before you can join a community. Before you can hear the words of affirmation and congratulations, you need to show your resume. Christianity says you can have all of that because Jesus died and rose again. You don't have to earn it. Now that's something worth not giving up on. Well, friends, as we press on, let's remember this passage well. Paul doesn't give up on Timothy, and he's telling Timothy to not give up because God didn't give up on us. And in Jesus, that has made all the difference in the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you did not give up on us. We thank you for coming to us as human to endure the miseries of this life, to die a sinner's death on the cross. We also know, Lord Jesus, you rose from the grave. You've conquered death. You've given us new life. You are now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And even now you are interceding for us. Even now you are praying for us. Lord, I pray for Storefront Church. I pray, Lord, that in the midst of laboring in ministry, in the midst of serving this community right here in this neighborhood, Lord, may you encourage them, give them an extra measure of grace, and remind them that you are always with them. 
thank you and praise things in your name. Amen.